Well, today we conclude our sermon series throughout the month of April as we look at what it means to live in the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And on the screen, you're going to see our passage for today. It comes from John 21. And if you've been with us for any length of time in this series, you know that we have been in this entire chapter for four weeks. And today we'll be focusing on verses 20 through 23. Now, as you're turning there, let, let me share with you just a little bit of backstory about something that emphasizes this passage for me. A couple of years ago, it, it was time for our family to, to, to get a new vehicle. The one that we had had was about 15 years old. Uh, it had been running without AC, and I could not wait to have a new vehicle. And the vehicle that we had was an SUV. It was a gas burner, didn't get good gas mileage. It was big, it was clunky, hard to find parking spots. And I could not wait to buy a small four-cylinder dad sedan. I could not wait to buy something that got great gas mileage and could park in any space in our city. Now, if you had asked the 18-year-old version of Aaron, how does this sound? When you're 40, you will long and desire to have a four-cylinder car because it gets great gas mileage and you can squeeze it into any parking space in the city. That would not be my preferred future. But today, it's something that excites me. I know... The needle moves pretty easily for me, but it's the little things in life. And just a few weeks ago, I was at a red light. I was at a red light in my four-cylinder sedan, and I was content, and I was happy. And all of a sudden, a massive 4x4 Jeep pulled up next to me. I happened to look next to me. Immediately, I thought, that's that's a manly-looking vehicle. (laughs) The wheels were taller than the hood, the roof of my sedan. The doors were off of this Jeep, and the music was blaring. And just as the pollen that we hate has brought with it sunshine and warm weather, the music was up, the doors were down, and I was able to lean down and look up as the driver just gave me one of these. (laughs) And 24 months of contentment went right out that same window. I don't know what caused me to do this, but being human and the human condition being what it is, I immediately began to compare my vehicle and my worth and my identity with the size and the vehicle and the possession that this man next to me owned. And so when the light turned green, being a pastor and being the mature giant that you would think I'd be, I would just let him go. But I floored it, and that little (laughs) four-cylinder, everybody within four miles could hear, as, as I beat him off the starting line. It was only a mile later that he would blow my doors off as the car wobbled as he <laughs> went by. Now, I don't know if you ever do that. I don't know if you ever do that, but the reason I use a material possession is it's very easy to compare what we have with what someone else has. It's very easy to compare what, some, what, what we do for a living with what someone else does for a living. And I'll just ask you that question. I don't know if you have similar experiences. You evaluate or compare your life, who you are, what you have, what you do, with what someone else has, and what they do. You know, comparison is very interesting. And comparison is very interesting because what comparison will do, it's in our nature to compare, but what comparison will do is it will distract you and drain your ability to pay attention to what God's doing in your own life. Comparison, being focused, even obsessed about what God is up to in the lives of those around you where we live, work, and play, it will drain you and distract you from what the living God 
is doing in your own life. And in order for you and I to pay attention to what God is up to in our lives, our eyes have to be focused on him and not on others. And I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see a perfect example of this truth that comes to us from John 21 and the life of Peter, a follower of Jesus. Would you stand with me in honor of Scripture this morning as we read verses 20 through 23 together? So Peter turned around and he saw the disciple that Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who is the one that's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? Verse 22, if I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. So this rumor spread to the brothers and sisters that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not tell him that he would not die. But if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you. When Peter turned around and took his eyes off Jesus and looked at one of the other disciples, he said, what about him? And Jesus said, as for you, follow me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you are our God and that we are your people. But we do, in our flesh, we struggle with comparison we evaluate our worth and our value based on the standard of someone else's success, what they have or what they do. Lord, I pray that we would keep our eyes on you, that we would become alive to what you are at work and doing in our lives, and that we would not live motivated by comparison, but that we would find contentment, joy, and peace compelled by the good news of the risen Jesus at work in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you remember what we discussed and the passage that we examined last week, Peter has just been told that the trajectory of his life will lead towards a successful career in ministry, but one that concludes with his death and martyrdom. Jesus had told Peter that his life would end in death, and we ultimately know that Peter was crucified for his faith. He was crucified for the sake of advancing the good news of Jesus. And Jesus told him, this death, the way you lay down your life so that others might find it in the sake of the gospel, this will be a death that will glorify and honor God. Your life and your death will be significant. It will be important. And so as Peter is walking with Jesus on the beach during this conversation, Jesus has just told him, your life will be significant. Even the way it comes to a conclusion will glorify God. And Peter can't help but be curious. As he looks over his shoulder, as we just read, Peter turns around and he sees John. Now we're reading the gospel of John. John, a follower of Jesus. John and Peter were followers of Jesus along with 10 other men who were the original disciples, and they often traveled with Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They journeyed through life, literally walking in his steps, close enough that the dust that Jesus kicked up would dirty their garments at the hems and the edges. They were always following Jesus. And so Peter has been told, this is a good thing. This will honor God. This will glorify God. It will be significant. And Peter can't help but wonder, will his life be significant too? Will what he gets to do be more important than me? 
Now, I don't know if anybody in the room does this, but it doesn't just happen at red lights when a big vehicle pulls up next to you. I can remember being given an award several years ago, being recognized for something in a room where several others were being recognized. And as they're saying some statements and some comments about some of the things that I had thankfully been able to accomplish, I can remember thinking, well, there are others who are standing up here. I wonder what they're going to say about them. I wonder if what I've contributed to the organization, what I've contributed to the effort is going to be as important and as meaningful as what they're going to say about their contribution. And it doesn't just happen with adults, it happens with children. It wasn't too long ago that we gave something to one of our children and while they're holding it in their hands, they said, well, what about them? Do they get the same thing? Do they get what I get? As if to say, I want to be significant, I want to be unique, I want to be more unique and more different than my brother or my sister. Even to the extent that they couldn't literally enjoy the blessing and the gift that had been placed in their hands. Peter can't help but look back and say, will he have a similar commission? Will he too have a glorious death? Will his life be more significant or even more influential than mine? Now, in all fairness, Peter and John had a, had, had a sibling-like budding rivalry and competition between one another. They really did. They, they were always kind of in competition with one another. If you don't believe me, then just think back to when John tells us about resurrection morning. On the morning of the resurrected Jesus Christ, Easter morning, John tells us in his gospel, the disciple that Jesus loved, that's me, outran Peter to the tomb. He got there first, but he let Peter go in first. Earlier in this chapter, John 21, you can literally bookmark your page, go back and read it later this week. Early in John 21, the Bible tells us that while these men were fishing, they had been fishing all night, they they had not seen Jesus on the shore of Galilee yet, but they had been fishing all night. They had not caught anything, and John recognizes on the shore. A man calls to them, have you caught anything? Dear friends, your translation might say, children, have you caught anything? And they look and they peer, and John, John's gospel, John recognizes that it's Jesus first. And it says, he turned to Peter and said, I saw him first. Now, that's not what's in your Bible. It won't say that. But that's what he's saying. You know who that is. That's him. That's Jesus. John saw him first. But dadgummit, Peter's going to get there first. And so Peter tucks his garments in and he jumps out of the boat. And the scripture says he plunged into the sea. He swam 100 yards, fully clothed, to get there first and beat John. If you keep reading, John's mom had even asked Jesus, which of my sons can sit at your right and your left? You know that I had to bother Peter when that question was asked. You, you, this is what you miss if you don't read Scripture. You don't get the backstory. You don't get the character development. There was a rivalry, a, a healthy competition between the two of them. So we'll give them that. And listen, there's nothing wrong with a little rivalry. There's nothing wrong with being a casual observer of what God is up to in someone else's life. What they're experiencing, what they're accomplishing. And matter of fact... You and I can learn from what God is doing in other people's lives. Isn't that what being a disciple of Jesus is about? I mean, we, we need pictures, images, lives lived out in front of us that demonstrate what it looks like as God matures us to, to know how, how do I handle this? How do I honor God when I'm successful in my business? There are a lot of successful entrepreneurial individuals, men and women in this room. Should the Lord bless you and give you increase, do you know how to handle that? Oftentimes we want things and the Lord blesses us with things, but because we've never had to persevere anything, Romans 5 says when you persevere something, it develops character in you. The Lord may actually answer every prayer that you and I have and it might destroy us because we're not ready to handle it. 
Well, how, how, do you, how do you know how to deal with that? You look for people that God has worked in their life. They might be a few months, a few years, a few experiences down the road, and you learn from them. There's nothing wrong with observing how God is at work in the lives of others. We can not only learn what God is up to, but we might be able to kind of discern what he might be up to in our life if he's worked in that person's life, in that person's life. We can see that in this congregation. But when you read Scripture, don't just read New Testament, read Old Testament too. What you see is a full complement of Scripture where if the Lord worked that way, and we see it again in the life of Esther, and we see it again in the life of David, and we see it again in the life of Mary and Martha, and we see it again in the life of John and Peter, it might be that God's at work that way in my life. Nothing wrong with observing to learn from others. But for Peter, he crossed the line from observing and a little bit of friendly rivalry to comparing his potential significance to God and to those kingdom efforts with the life of John. It's one thing to observe, but comparison is another. Listen, let me give you a little bit of a working definition of comparison. Comparison is when you measure your value and your worth based on the standard of what someone else has or what they do. Comparison is when you measure your value and your worth in life and to Jesus himself based on the standard of what someone else has or what they do. Peter wanted to ensure that his calling, that his life was just as important, if not more important, than John's. And there's a major problem with getting your value and your worth from comparison. There is a huge internal problem with getting your value and your worth from comparing your life with the success, the influence, or the effectiveness of someone else's life. And the first thing is this, the standard, the bar for which you are aiming, if you look at someone, if I look at that guy with the truck, if I look at someone in ministry who's successful and say, I want to be what they are, might be able to learn from them, but if I say, no, I want what they have, and my effectiveness is not good enough unless I achieve that. If you look at somebody you work with or somebody is in a relationship and you long for the, the type of relationship they have, maybe with a significant other, maybe with a spouse, maybe you long for a healthy relationship with your child or your niece or your nephew, and you value, I, I, I will be successful in that if I have what they have. The problem with that is that the bar is always moving. The standard of measuring up and you being valuable is always moving. Let me give you an example. It is not unusual when someone asks me what I do for a living or I'm at a pastoral conference and they find out that our church is about three and a half years old. It's not unusual for someone to ask me, how many you running? How many you running? Well, look, I know the marathon was in town last week, but they ain't talking about health and exercise. How many are you running, pastor? And what they're saying is, how many do you have in attendance on Sunday morning? How many do you have in attendance? As if to imply, even well intended, because the health and the success and the worth and the value of the congregation is wrapped up in how many are attending. And historically, a lot of times in churches in North America, we measure it by that. But for the past however many decades, there have been churches that have run into the thousands. And I dare say... Many lives were never changed that anything that happened in that one hour on Sunday exited the building with that man or woman. It is an important metric, and we praise God when we add services or when the room is full. Absolutely. We need to pay attention to that. But it's not the only metric. And it's not the top one at the scorecard for the church at Avenue South either. We are evaluating and we are praying for lives that are changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And oftentimes that is measured in how many people are sent out and run off compared to how many people are in the building on a Sunday morning. But what if we said, man, we long to be a church of 600? 
we got about 450 on a Sunday morning. What if we said we want to be a church of 600 and we hit 600? Guess what? I'm going to go to a conference somewhere down the road and somebody's going to say, how many are you running? And then I might think, well, well, is that good enough? Does it need to be more? Church around the corner has more. Church around the corner has, a, has more services. The standard is always moving. And listen, what if you get everything you're after that you might look at someone else's life, that you might want what they have? What if you get everything you're after? A pastor that I have long watched from a distance, his sermons, his podcast, says this, your flesh only knows one word, and it's more. Your flesh only knows one word, and it's more. The standard that you're chasing, once you get it, if you get it, will only move. The target is moving. That's one of the problems with comparison. But another problem with comparison is that God never intended for you to have what somebody else has. God never intended for you to have what someone else has. So if you're chasing what they have, it's a fruitless pursuit anyway. And I give you John and Peter as examples. I give you scriptural examples, John and Peter. I want you to consider the lives of John and Peter. They could not have been two more distinctly different individuals with two distinctly and unique separate callings. Think about it. Peter was passionate. He was outgoing. He was a vocal preacher. He was a foundational witness in the local church in the, books of, in the book of Acts. And he would die a very public death. John, on the other hand, John was quiet. We like guys like Peter that are bold and loud. We also like people that think first and speak second. He was quiet oftentimes. He was a thinker. He wasn't a preacher. He was a faithful writer. And his death was not very public. But he passed away, as best we can tell, after enduring a life of persecution in, in, in relative peaceful obscurity. Their lives, the trajectory of their lives, their callings couldn't have been more different. And that's what we forget when we compare our lives with someone else. We, we forget that they're on a tra different trajectory than ours, and we're not privy to everything God wants to do in their life. So when Peter looks at John and says, will my life be just as important as his? He is, he is asking to be measured against something that he was never intended to live up to. And that's one of the problems with comparison. God had uniquely shaped their lives in a specific way to accomplish what he wanted to do through that man. And it's the same way for each of us. One of the reasons that we say we need everybody in this church involved in helping us advance the gospel. We need, let me use this word, everybody involved. If it were a sporting event, the local church, there's no one in the stands. There's no one on the sideline. We're all on the game field. Because you bring something very unique to the mission of God in the local church avenue south that the person next to you does not. Well, there may be teachers or those of us in the room with leadership or mercy or exhortation. So you may find someone in the congregation. You're like, we, we have the same spiritual gift. We love to encourage others. But you encourage people totally differently than that same person who has that gift of encouragement. I don't know if you saw in the video about deacons. They write prayer cards. They write prayer notes to tell people. It is amazing how when a deacon writes a prayer note and mails it, it arrives in the mailbox of that man, that woman, that widow, that widower, that child at just the right divine time. Hugely important ministry. I am so blessed that weekly I check my mailbox here and get notes from deacons that say I'm praying for you. But some people aren't writers. Some of us, we don't, we don't, we don't know what to, to say in a letter. And if you're like me, your penmanship looks like chicken scratch. And you're like, I'm just going to tell them. Do you know how many people, I, I, all of us, 
Do you know how many negative messages of discouragement we get that we don't measure up to the world standards or to the standard we're chasing? It is like the living water that Jesus offered to the woman at the well. It is like salve or ointment on, on a wound when, when you tell someone something encouraging. Motivated by God's work in your life, you tell them so. Maybe you don't write, but you verbally say, I want you to know something. You made a difference. I can see God at work in your life. We may have some of the same gifts, but we share them. We demonstrate them uniquely. So even the idea of comparing what we have and what we do and what God has given to us, even with someone who seems to have the same similar gifts, we're not on the same trajectory. Like John and Peter, we're asking to be evaluated by something that God never invited us to do. There are tons. I could go on and on and on with the problems of comparison. And intuitively, I think we know this. It's a fruitless pursuit to compare our lives with others. But, but the thing that's, that's the most gut-wrenching about it, that, that is the most damaging to a follower of Jesus, is if your eyes are on someone else, this is a fact. If your eyes are facing this way and Jesus is here, you can't look at Jesus while your eyes are focused on somebody else. And if there is a Christian standard that we should live up to, if there is a standard that we should be pursuing, the standard that we should be comparing our lives to is the person of Jesus Christ. Our only standard for comparison is the person of Jesus Christ. And as long as Peter was looking at John, he couldn't look at Jesus to see what he was doing in his own life. Peter, as long as you're looking at him, I... I, I I can't help you understand what I'm up to in your life. I signed up this spring to coach spring flag football. I, I, I did that last fall. I'm a glutton for punishment, and I signed up again this spring. And, and we're, we're trying to coordinate seven or eight little 10-year-olds to run plays and, and, and not be torqued up on sugar and hot chocolate when it's cold and orange slices and bananas and other things when it's warm out there. And I, I have to say constantly, I need you to listen with your eyes. And one of them said, what are you talking about? I need you to listen with your eyes. And they said, what do you mean? And I said, when I'm talking and you're doing this number, I'm pretty sure what I tell you, you aren't going to retain or remember. And this is true. My motivation is, I told him yesterday, I don't care if we win a single ball game. I want you to get better. And I want you to gain confidence. And I want you to have joy and contentment that you have a healthy body that can do this. And that there is joy in growing just a little bit more than where you started six weeks ago. In order to coach, in order to shape, in order to help you understand that, I need you to listen with your eyes and your ears. Because when you're looking at your teammate or you're looking at mom on the sideline during the middle of the play, please don't do that. <laughs> you can't hear what I'm trying to invest in you. Now, I'm not Jesus. I'm just using that as a metaphor to say when Jesus is trying to get our attention to say, I'm so excited about what I'm shaping in your life and what I'm doing in your life, and I, I, I can't tell you the amount of peace and contentment it's going to bring you. When you and I are looking at others, we can't hear that. We can't see that. And so we start chasing things where the target moves. It's a fruitless pursuit anyway. And it distracts and robs us of what God's doing in our own life. Comparison is the enemy of contentment. Comparison is the enemy of joy. Comparison is the enemy of peace. And that's where this sermon series started, that Jesus says... 
peace be with you. And one of our members painted that canvas in the atrium. When you walk out these doors today and see peace be with you, that means it's available to you. But if you're comparing your worth and your value against someone else's standard, any other standard, than the person of Jesus Christ and what he's up to in your life, you will not see it, you will not hear it, and you will not receive and enjoy or experience the amount of peace, contentment, and confidence that he intends for you and me to have. And so one of the most important things that Jesus did when he was with the disciples before his death, is that he shared a meal with them. He shared what we refer to as the Lord's Supper. We, we also refer to it as communion. And it was one of the ways that, just like he told Peter in this text, as for you, you follow me. As for you, you fix your eyes on me. As the old hymn, I love hymns, as the old hymn says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Jesus shared bread and he shared a cup of wine and the bread represented his body that would be broken for them. The, the cup of wine represented the deep rich color of his blood that would be shed for the forgiveness of sin and he gave them a lasting image to say, as for you, find your worth and your value in what I'm doing for you. And what I say about you. If you want to know if your life is worthy, if it measures up, if it's important, if it's significant. Jesus Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed to provide healing and wholeness. If not fully in this life, definitely in the next. And to provide the forgiveness of sin, redemption, do-over, second chances in this life. And if not fully in this life, definitely in the next. And he said, as for you, fix your eyes on me. That's one of the reasons the local church has been commanded and instructed by Jesus that every time that we eat a meal, every time we break bread, it's an opportunity to fix our eyes on Jesus and let all of the other distractions, let all of the other things we might be tempted to compare ourselves with or standards to chase, let them fade away. And that's one of the reasons we're going to conclude this sermon series with the Lord's Supper. With communion, it is an opportunity to tell the Lord, help me fix my eyes on you even greater, even richer, even deeper than I currently do. And if you need to say, Lord Jesus, I have been chasing everything else but you, then it's an opportunity to say, Jesus, forgive me. Give me a heart and a hunger to follow you. And you can even pray, Lord Jesus, set me free from my fleshly temptation to compare my worth and my value to anyone else in my life. That's why this moment is so important. So one of the things I'm going to encourage you to do, if I could, um, let me just encourage you just to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment.